Welcome to the Best of St. Joseph Radio, a program that for more than 30 years has sought out eloquent speakers throughout the world to help explain, clarify, and evangelize the Catholic faith. People who seek to put Christ first in their lives, living the Father's will, witnessing to His grace, love, and forgiveness. Now with the aid of technology, we are able to reach the four corners of the world with the gospel message, where Christ Himself did say, those who have ears ought to hear. Brothers and sisters, sit back, relax, and open your ears and heart to the good news on the best of St. Joseph Radio Presents. Today's guest speaker, Dr. Ray Garandi, is the father of 10, clinical psychologist, author, public speaker, and nationally syndicated radio and television host. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the best of St. Joseph Radio. My wife is a convert to the Catholic faith. She had a hard time with confession. Not the theology. She understood the theology that the priest is in persona Christi. The priest can forgive sins for the community and in our Lord's authority. But she had trouble with when you go to confession, you have to confess your own sins and not your husband's. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I just done two things here, but I got a list of stuff that Ray's done I've been keeping track of. She made her first confession when she was 39. So I'm figuring I want to support her. I want to be there during her confession the whole time. So I took three days off of work. One priest ain't going to be enough. You know, you got to have a priest for every five or six years or something. So she comes out and I said, honey, what father, uh, what father say? She was, that's between me and father. I said, well, what'd you tell father? I'm not telling you that. You can tell me we're one. We're one. You can tell me. She said, Ray, I'm not telling you. So I figured out a strategy. If you want to know what your spouse said or your kids said in confession, you got to reason backwards. It's not perfect, but you can get an idea. So, uh, <clears throat> honey, uh, what'd you get for penance? <laughs> now, if you get a sense of what they got for penance you can know how bad they really were. And sometimes you can almost figure out the sins. She said, I guess I could tell you that. I got a rosary. Rosary. Well, that, that's not bad for 40 years of rot gut pagan stuff. That's not bad. In Aramaic. I said, well, you know, okay, Aramaic. With the stations of the cross at every bead. Okay. And then she asked me, she said, what do you usually get? I said, half a sign of the cross. <laughs> Sometimes a quarter. I left the Catholic Church when I was 35. I wasn't mad at her. Some priest didn't upset me, wasn't disgruntled with her morals. I just figured it didn't matter. Jesus is Jesus, and that's the way it is, and 
you could worship Jesus over there, and you could worship him over there, and we got to have a relationship with Jesus, and that's all that really matters. So what's the problem? And I became very active in the Protestant world. At one point, three or four Bible studies a week, some of which I was teaching, and I had a prison ministry, several years of a prison ministry. I was getting to know pretty much the theology of the particular non-denominational denomination that I was in. <laughs> and then I started to have trouble. Let me preface my remarks today by saying this. There are many holy, devout, God-seeking people in the Protestant world. They could put our fervor to shame. I am going to be talking about the system that they are in. I am not impugning them and their honest sincerity seeking God. I'm talking about the system. I got to know Protestantism, I think, reasonably well. And then I started to get confused. Because, you see, for me, I was educated initially as an engineer. Logic. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. Can't argue that. Something can't be A and not A. Logic. A system has to hold together within itself. It's got to make sense within itself. You tell me what you believe, and then tell me what else you believe, and then I'm going to see if those two things are coherent. Well, that was the beginning of my look back towards the Catholic faith. I found the system I was in incredibly incoherent. Let me give you some brief examples. One of the main theological underpinnings of Protestantism is that I have the Bible and I can interpret it with the help of the Holy Spirit. And that's all I need. I've got the Bible. I'm a believer. The Holy Spirit will guide me. I'll come up to truth. It's a nice theory. How's it work? Well, some of you may know that presently and growing in the Protestant world, there are over 30,000 different denominations, independent churches, and sects, all of which say we use the Bible, all of which say we interpret the Bible ourselves, all of which say the Holy Spirit guides us to truth, and many of whom vehemently disagree on significant points of the faith. One problem. Second problem. They truly believe that they don't need anybody to tell them how to interpret the Bible. That's what they are told. That's a basic underpinning of their faith. You can read. You have the Holy Spirit. Read it. Come to the truth of Jesus Christ. You'll be guided. Okay. Do you know what the current literacy rate is in the United or I'm sorry, in the world? It's the highest it's ever been in human history. It's 30%. Do you know what it's been throughout most of human history? Under 5%. So we have a faith tradition based upon reading. Throughout all of human history, the vast majority of people couldn't read. Furthermore, prior to the 14th 15th century, nobody had Bibles. They were too expensive. 
If one town had one, they were fortunate. So we've got a system that essentially says, read, come to the conclusions of Jesus Christ. Okay, but what about the first 1,500 years? Did Jesus establish a system like that, or did he establish another system, and then that system took over? Problem. Scripture says nowhere that it's the only thing. If, in fact, the Bible is the only rule of faith necessary for a Christian, you'd think the Bible would say that. It doesn't say that. There's a problem. In logic, they call that a self-refuting proposition. How can the Bible be the sole and sufficient rule of faith if the Bible itself doesn't say it's the sole and sufficient rule of faith? You have to take certain verses and stretch them in the Bible to make it say that. But literally, which is what most of my friends said they were, literalists, except on certain verses. <laughs> See, that's my definition of a fundamentalist. Fundamentalist interprets the Bible literally sometimes. <laughs> this is my body. Well, he didn't mean this is. You know, it's funny. Everybody got mad at Bill Clinton for arguing over the verb is. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, it doesn't mean that. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. Well, it doesn't mean water there. It means Bible. It means uh, Word of God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean water. Really? Where's the asterisk there that says that? I thought you were the one that was a literalist. I thought you got mad at me because I took it in a context. But there were worse problems for me. For example... I asked people that I trusted and that I knew were very bright. How come you can't agree? You're really bright. You know this Bible a lot better than I do. You've been studying it for 70 years. You're a scholar. You're a scripture scholar. He's a scripture scholar. You guys don't agree. If two people who know the Bible in the original languages as much as you do can't agree, what, how are me and she going to get this? And I would hear this. Well, we agree on the basics. Okay, then my next question is, what are the basics? Who determines the basics? Are the basics salvation? Yes. Fair enough. Her denomination says you can walk away from your salvation. You can lose it. Your denomination says you can't. Your faith tradition, which is 74 years old, says that you cannot lose your salvation once you have a genuinely personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot be pulled from his hands in any way, shape, or form, no matter what sins you commit. Her says, well, of course you can. Is that a basic she says, through the teaching of her particular denomination, that it's a horrible evil to kill a child in a womb. His says, no, it isn't. That's a woman's decision. Now, is that a basic? Is life a basic? Hers says that the Eucharist is the very body and blood of Jesus Christ in a miraculous way. Hers says it's a memorial meal, that's all it is. Do this in memory of me, and that's it. Hers says that Jesus is present spiritually, but not physically. 
His says, well, he's present in a true sense, but not in the sense of the Catholic Church sense. Her says that he's present alongside the bread and the wine. I'm really getting confused here because how do I know who to believe? And does it really not matter? Do we just have to agree to disagree? I heard that all the time. We have to agree to disagree. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. Major on the major, minor on the minors. You know what? The problem with Catholics, you guys got no sound bites. <laughs> well, what about the papacy? Well, the primacy of the papacy oftentimes has to be understood in the historical context. What? Pete's got the seat. <laughs> you know, you got to have some sound bites. The keys is from Jesus. They're killing us on sound bites. Sometimes I heard this as an answer. Well, you know, it is true that the Holy Spirit will guide you to truth. The problem is the Holy Spirit has to work through sinners. And therefore, we don't know if she's preaching from her pulpit, if she's a sinner. And in fact, she may be giving a warped interpretation. The Holy Spirit is genuine and authentic. She's not. So as it tries to maneuver his way through her understanding, it gets twisted and warped, and she comes out with bad teaching. Okay, fair enough. How do I know whether she's a bigger sinner than him? Tell me. I sit back and go, well, you know, he's teaching stuff that could be sinful. I don't know. I don't know if he could be having an adulterous affair. I don't know, you know. Maybe that's why he's teaching bad. I don't know. I don't have any idea. How do I tell if he's a sinner or not? I asked a lady after one of my talks, I said, okay, we disagree on infant baptism. You cite your verses. I cite my verses. We disagree on purgatory. You cite your verses. I cite my verses. We disagree on all kinds of doctrine. You cite your ten verses. I cite my seven verses. You cite your four verses. I cite my nine verses. If St. Peter, sorry, sorry, Mr. Peter. If Mr. Peter were here right now and you and I were debating, for example, whether you should baptize that little baby boy of yours who's only three months old, and you know you're not supposed to baptize him because there's nothing in the Bible that says you're supposed to baptize a three-month-old because, in fact, three-months-old can't make a profession of faith and they can't really understand us. And I always wanted to say to people, so you're telling me you can understand Jesus? You're telling me that you have infinite knowledge where you can go, I'm ready to make a confession. Now I can understand because I'm really, really, really bright. No, you're not. Compared to God, you're nothing. Compared to God, the three-year-old's like this, and you're like this. <laughs> so we'll argue, say, over these verses, if Peter were here, could we turn to him and say, Peter, you traveled with Jesus for three and a half years. Will you please tell us, did Jesus teach that you baptize an infant and that indeed it's okay that you immerse or sprinkle and that that baptism washes away sin? It's not just a community statement. And I asked her, could Peter tell us this? Could he resolve our dispute? 
And she said, yes. And I said, okay. If he did, would you believe him? And she said, it depends. <laughs> I said, it depends on what? Whether he follows scripture or not. She truly believed it, and she wasn't a flake. That's how so often it is viewed. I understand scripture. I've been given truth through the Holy Spirit. The scripture is very clear. Therefore, if even Peter himself would go against scripture, as I would interpret it, that is. See, that's always that little parenthetical phrase there that's not really spoken then I wouldn't necessarily believe him. So my first problem was I really, 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 really struggled with the coherency of Protestantism. I still wasn't looking back at Catholicism yet. But remember, law of logic. you got two systems. One of them doesn't hold together internally. It's illogical. The only other alternative is to take a look at the other system. See, it wasn't a matter of me of saying, well, Catholics really have some really, really, really smart people, and then I'll have my really, really smart people debate with these really, really smart people over here in Protestantism, and we'll see who makes the better argument. I wasn't at that point yet. I think the Catholics have the much superior argument. But at that point, all I knew was, you know, the system I've been in for the last eight years isn't really holding together. The more I understand it, it's not holding together. I can't establish truth here. Did Jesus come to earth for three and a half years to tell us agree to disagree? Just worry about the majors. Just worry about the majors. All the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Hold it. What matters is what he taught. Now, if he didn't teach it, okay, then maybe it doesn't matter. But I want to know, did he teach that Eucharist is him? Did he teach that or didn't he? There's an answer to that question, and I think it should be possible to find it. Don't you? I was told in the denomination that I was in that if you had salvation, and it was a genuine faith experience, you could never lose your salvation. I remember one time I asked in Bible study a lady that had been born out in California, about 15 or 16, she said she came to the Lord, and then she got heavy into drugs and wildlife and alcohol for many, 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 many years. And I said to her, were you still saved? Oh, yes. I was already saved. I was just backslid. I said, you better hope God agreed. <laughs> I asked someone, all right, I'm saved. I made a personal confession, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, ask him into my heart. Nine years later, the neighbor lady is really, really cute. I dump my wife and kids. I run off with the neighbor lady. I say to myself, you know what? I ain't going to live under this kind of torment anymore. I'm just abandoning Christianity altogether. I don't want to live under this kind of moral torment. I'll just forget it. What would you say? And here's the answer I got from virtually all of them. And the bright ones, too. And the pastors. You weren't saved to begin with. Okay. Now let me see if I got this right. You said, I have assurance of salvation if I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nine years later, I say this is a bunch of bunk. At that point, you tell me you weren't saved nine years ago. I thought I was. For nine years, I believed I was. For nine years, everybody in my community told me I was. So you're saying I was wrong, that I 
didn't have the assurance of salvation. So what you're saying is, I only have the assurance of salvation if I make it all the way to death. You see the logic problem. That's the Catholic perspective. But they would never acknowledge that. Second problem. I was driving through McDonald's. Heard the pastor on the radio say, don't listen to me. You do not have to believe the words I preach. Go to scripture and determine it for yourself. And I remember yelling at the radio saying, that's not what you mean. If I go to scripture and I determine for myself something different than what you're teaching, you're going to tell me I'm wrong. And I'm going to say to you, I'm only playing by your rules. Your rules are I can take that Bible and I can read it and pray to the Holy Spirit for guidance. And when that Holy Spirit teaches me, then you're going to turn around and tell me if you disagree with me, you you misunderstand Scripture. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. At least the Catholic Church has consistent rules. The Catholic Church says, don't go there. Don't interpret it yourself because you aren't authorized to do that. Well, that's at least consistent. You may not agree with it, but it's at least consistent. I remember when our pastor of our non-denominational kicked my wife and me out of the church. He did. (laughs) And I remember saying to him, okay, I understand that you have that authority, but I only have one question. For the last six months, you have been in this class telling us all to be little scripture scholars, to understand the word of God. I'm not a dumb guy. I've got a PhD. Well, I did what you said, and I came to a different scriptural conclusion, and you're telling me, get out. So you really didn't mean go study it. What you meant was go study it and agree with me. That's what you meant. He just looked at me like, what are you talking about? It seemed pretty clear to me. Another problem I had. You know as well as I do that the Catholic Church is viewed as, well, you people oftentimes in many other Christians' eyes are not Christians. And the reason you're not Christians is because you and your church have warped the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have added a lot of junk to it. You added prayers to Mary. You added confession. You added purgatory. You added the Eucharist. You added the Mass. You added the communion of saints. You added baptizing babies. You just added all kinds of nonsense over the centuries. And because of that, you have destroyed Christianity. Your faults. Okay, that's a fair hypothesis. Let's check it. I didn't realize that back in the first and second and third centuries, we had a lot of writing. A lot of writing from people who weren't canonized, but yet they knew the apostles. They were bishops. They were first theologians. They were martyrs. They were recognized at the time, as people of great faith, bright people of great faith. Okay, they wrote stuff. Some of the stuff they wrote was actually considered scripture for a while, various locales. These are bright folk, Ignatius. It's been said that he knew the Apostle John for years and years and years and years and years. He was put in place probably by the Apostle John. He died in 106, 107 AD. Polycarp, he knew the Apostle John. Justin Martyr, he was right a little bit later, but these guys wrote stuff. Did they write, we don't confess to priests. We don't believe that Mary was ever virgin, mother of God, no other children, 
New Eve. No, that's nonsense. We don't believe any of that. Baptize babies? Oh, heavens no. Jesus taught us you can't ever baptize anyone unless they make a confession of faith. The Eucharist? I don't get this idea that uh, somebody, some of these people around here are floating around saying the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. What are you, nuts? Jesus never taught that. None of them said anything like that. They talked about all these things in various forms. They talked about the papacy in different words. They talked about baptizing babies. Irenaeus, he is quoted as saying, the custom of baptizing infants is nothing but apostolic. It came to us from the very apostles themselves. Whoa, whoa. This guy, this guy wrote real early, like second century or third century. What's going on here? The more I read, the more I came to understand that all of the junk that the Catholic Church has been accused of was present back in the first, second, and third century. Now, I'll tell you what. If they got goofy, they got goofy real fast. And I will tell you this. If they got that goofy that fast... That means they could have got real goofy about who Jesus was, too. So don't give me that. If these people are going to start talking about the Eucharist being the body and blood of Christ, and that's not true, well, then I'll tell you what. They're flaky. And this whole part about Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus being the Son of God and three persons in the Blessed Trinity, how much does that flake, too? No. No, logically, it has to be one or the other. Either those guys who wrote back then in the 3rd, 1st, 1st, 2nd, 5th, ninth centuries knew what they were talking about, or they didn't. And if they didn't, what else didn't they know what they were talking about either? Here's the answer I always got. Some of my brighter friends, I'm aware of those writings. I know that's how they talked. I know that's how they thought. I know that's how they believed. So what? Doesn't matter. They weren't infallible. Only scripture's infallible. Now think about this a second. Talk about arrogance. I, living in the 21st century, with my limited knowledge of ancient languages, with my limited knowledge of sociology of the times, with my limited knowledge of idioms and the psychology and all the many, 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 many times and places this book was written, I can be trusted more than Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, the Didache, Shepherd of Hermas. I can know more than they do. And I heard this. I was having real troubles. I got a question. Some of you have purchased my books. Not enough of you, but some of you. Now, you know, those of you who haven't, don't blame me when your kids are on Springer. I'll tell you that right now. You read a couple of my books, and you say, you know, this, I don't understand what he just wrote here. This, this isn't real clear. I don't get this because he seems to contradict something he said somewhere else in his book. How would you know what I meant? What's one way to know what I meant? Ask me. That's right. Hey, you wrote this stuff. What would you mean? Okay, I'm dead now. How would you know what I meant? Pray to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, you'd ask my wife. She'd tell you what I meant, whether that's what I meant or not. <laughs> you would ask somebody who heard me, would you not? You heard him. You went to his talks. You know the guy's tone, the tenor. What's, what, what, can you reconcile these things here? Well, that's what those early writings are. 
If we go to the Bible, we can all fire Bible verses at each other all over the place. You can strip verses out of any context, anywhere you want. And you can play the Bible verse game, and I beat you 9 to 6, so I win. No, that doesn't work at all. Because if you go back and you find out what they believed, you'll find out, and this was much to my somewhat dismay and my wife's horror, by the way, that the early church just flat-out stinking smelled Catholic. So much of what we believe that our Protestant brothers and sisters think we're nonsense about was already there or taking shape. Well, there are other problems here. I remember telling the pastor, um, you know the problem? The Eucharist. And he looked at me like, what? What are you talking about? See, the Eucharist for us is centrality. For most other denominations, especially the more, the more modern, non-denominational, megachurch types, the Eucharist is kind of like an ancillary thing. It's just sort of a little ceremony that you do here and there to kind of remember what Jesus told you to do. And he looked at me funny. He said, what are you talking about? If the Catholic Church is right, if that little wafer, that little white wafer, is somehow miraculously Jesus Christ himself, then they're right and you missed it. And if you miss something that big, how can I trust you? On the other hand, if the Catholic Church is wrong, and that's just a little white wafer, and you people go in there and sit in front of it for an hour and pray. And you get down on your face in front of it and you bow. And you go up and you take it at Mass and making sure you don't have any sins. But all it is is a white wafer. No offense, you may be real nice people, but you're flaky. Now let's think about this a second. One of the first things your children are going to hear from their college profs is this. Jesus Christ was a good man. He was a philosopher, a noble philosopher. He taught good things. That is the stupidest thing you could say about Jesus Christ. There's no way that person could be a good man. Why? Well, if we say he was a good man on the basis of what he said then we have to say that at least in some part we believe those Gospels. If you believe those Gospels at some level, he also said a whole bunch of other things. I'm coming back at the end of time. I'm God. You need to worship me. I can forgive your sins. I'm going to rise from the dead. He said so many other lunatic things if he was just a good man? Hey, I worked at the state mental hospital for a year. I'd sit and interview people. And they'd try to get me to figure out whether they were crazy or not. So uh, tell me your name. Oh, my name's Lisa Payne. That's good. You have uh, children, Lisa? Yes, I have uh, three. 21, 19, and 16. Good. Have you been married? Yes, I was married. I was divorced nine years ago. Okay. And we talk. And I say, Lisa, anything else? Uh, yes, one other thing. What's that, dear? I'm God. You ain't going to say you're God and be a good person. You're either going to be nuts or you're going to be a liar. Now, if you're a liar and you know you're not God, you just sent a whole bunch of people to their death because you told them 
to follow you and give up their lives for you. What are you, evil? No, no, no. Jesus did not give us that option. He is either who he said he is or he is a liar or a deceived lunatic or a mystic sort of flake. None of that fits with the whole scriptural picture. But see, the Eucharist is kind of the same thing. Think about it a second. Guys, I'm talking to you because you have more trouble than this than the women do. You look up there, Father holds up that host, that consecrated host. You are asked to believe by the Catholic Church that somehow, someway, that's Jesus himself. Now, where I came from, those people said, how can you possibly believe that? You got eyes. It's a little white flower wafer. You got eyes, don't you? Okay. Lisa, you're my guinea pig, honey. Shoot, don't have a quarter. I'll have to use a penny. What is this, honey? That's a penny. Very good answer, because that's the last one you're going to get right. <laughs> would you, well, let's get somebody strong here. There's a young man over here. Hey, bend that penny for me, would you? Yeah, bend it in half, would you? What are you, a wimp? You can't bend that penny in half? Why can't you bend that penny in half? It's look how thin it is. You can't bend this in half? Why not? You're a wimp. But going beyond your wimpness, why can't you bend this penny in half? It's very solid, isn't it? I mean, this stuff, this is rough. I mean, as small as it is, it's metal. You could bend it with your bare hands, you couldn't bend it. But you could bend it with something else. You're totally wrong. This penny is complete space. Anybody who has had Physics 101 will tell you that this penny is 99.9999999999999999% space. It's all space. Why does it look like it's solid? Well, that's my next question here for Lisa. Here, Lisa, put that in your hand, honey. Put that, hold that as still as you can right there like that. Okay, very still, right? You're holding that penny as still as you can hold it. Correct? Totally wrong. This penny is moving, if we were at the equator, approximately 25,000 miles an hour. But since we're not at the equator, we're further north, it's not moving quite that fast. The Earth is moving through the solar system in its orbit much, much, much faster than that. The solar system is moving through the galaxy even faster than that, and the galaxy is moving through the universe even faster than that. But that's not the most mind-boggling part of this. Part of the reason you could not bend this penny is because the subatomic particles in this penny, of which there are dozens and dozens of them to each atom, are moving, some of them, how fast? Anybody know? Close to the speed of light. Does anybody know what the speed of light is? Homeschooling mother. 186,000 miles per second. You know, you ask this question to high school kids. Oh, like, uh, it's really fast. <laughs> How fast, honey? Oh, I, I'll bet 50, 60 miles an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> there are subatomic particles, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions, countless numbers of them, moving upwards at 186,000 miles per second in this little penny. Now, excuse me. 
didn't you say to me that your senses could tell what this is? Don't your senses tell you that this is standing still and solid, both of which are completely, totally wrong? It is not standing still at all. It is in motion that's inconceivably fast, and it's pretty much all space. What happened to your vaunted senses? When that priest holds that host up, and you look at that, and you say, I know the church tells me that's Jesus, but it sure don't look like it. Remember, you totally missed it on this penny. You are completely off. And this is not nuclear particle physics. This is physics 101. Your kids go to college and take first physics. This is what they're going to learn. Sometimes I'll tease my Protestant friends. You have a real hard time with that Eucharist thing? (laughs) Yes. You can't believe that Jesus would actually be under the appearances of that. You You don't believe that, right? No. Okay, I got a question for you. When... Did the second person of the blessed Trinity become human? At what point? Conception. That's right. Mary's egg. Holy Spirit in a miraculous way fertilized that egg. Now, at that moment of conception, you know your basic biology, there was one fertilized egg there, a zygote. Take it out of Mary's fallopian tubes, put it underneath a microscope, and look at it. What would you see? Would you see? Oh, is that cool? There's God down there. Look at that. Right behind the DNA. Oh, cool. Thiamine, guanine, cytosine. Ooh. You'd see a cell. You wouldn't see God. But they have no problems believing that. That's part of why the religious leaders didn't accept Jesus. They'd say, you're telling me that that guy sitting over there who poops, who pees, who sweats, who gets hungry, who was a baby, a baby that had to be held by his mother, who couldn't even speak, was God? What are you, nuts? We got eyes. You see the problem, dear people? I'm really convinced that in many ways God described and put together the laws of physics as he did so he could hide and people of faith would have to accept it because that wafer is nothing like what you can see with your senses. Why couldn't it be what God said it is? One more thing among many brought me back to the Catholic Church. This one's particularly relevant to this group. Many of you have larger families than the average 2.1 in the U.S. And because of that, you are viewed as bizarros. You're viewed as lunatics. You're viewed as, don't you know how this is happening? (laughs) Boy, I'm sure glad it's you and not me. And you want to say, my kids probably do too. (laughs) With that attitude. Well, I'm glad because I'm going to be 43 when they're finally gone and I'll still have some life left. What'd you have them for then? Besides, you ain't going to be 43. They're going to leave for a couple years just to tease you and come back. (laughs) At least us, we got brothers and sisters they can live with. (laughs) Now, for all of human history, people viewed children as a blessing. They viewed them as a gift from God. Only when we became incredibly wealthy 
incredibly self-centered, incredibly hedonistic, do we decide uh, one's fine, thank you, one is fine, two is fine, two is max, three, okay, you got your boy, stop it now, you got your boy, you had two girls before, you got your boy, now let's quit it. And it's fascinating because a lot of times it's your moms who tell you this and you're the fifth kid that she had and she's mad because you had three and you're saying, Mom, what are you telling me about me? You wanted to stop at three, you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be sitting in this house going, what am I doing in here? (laughs) In 1968, I was in high school and I remember even if my limited understanding then the pressure on Paul VI to change the church's teaching on birth control. He got together a whole bunch of really smart people, mental health types and medical people and social workers or all those fancy types, you know, theologians, and they said, all right, let's get together and come up with some suggestions here because the pressure's getting pretty heavy on changing the church's teaching on contraception. All the Protestants have all since changed it. And by the way, Up until 1930, every single Christian denomination, Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern, essentially said contraception is a grave moral evil. And I used to say to my friends, wait a minute, was the Holy Spirit right then or is he right now? Holy Spirit said it was a grave moral evil then through the understanding of Scripture, of course, because that's all you had. Well, was that wrong then and he's right now? Or is he wrong now and he was right then? You can't be both. can't be A and not A. Nineteen sixty-eight. The message to the Pope was, "Let's rethink this teaching. We're going to drown the Earth in people. California is going to fall into the ocean. We're going to suck up all the rainforests, and we're not going to have any wheat left. We are two years away from running out of coal and oil." The Pope came out in a bombshell, Humana Vitae, and basically said, no, we are reiterating the church's nearly 2,000-year-old teaching. You do not slap God in the face, essentially, and say, if you want to give me a child, I don't want it. All kinds of things will happen. Women will be cheapened. Abortion will explode. Families will fragment. And everybody went, oh, Please, all this. See, this is a classic example of this Catholic being run by an old man in Rome. This is exactly what's going on. Get him out of our bedrooms. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a celibate, and this is exactly what happened. You see, do you, do you Catholic people get this act straight? You're never going to be able to relate to the modern world. They did not know in 1968 how the pill worked. They knew that it worked by preventing ovulation and egg dropping. They did not know, as medical evidence is now accumulated more and more, that there is some unknown percent of time that the pill is not perfect, it does not work, an egg will drop. If the egg is fertilized, it will attempt to implant and it will be washed out. So you have a one, two, three, four-year-old baby killed. They didn't know that then. Now let's just ponder the logic of this. Had the church said, life begins at conception. Let's not get into the debate about insolment, but the church has always viewed life as beginning at conception. Oh, by the way, ladies, you can take something 
that in some percentage of time will kill that life. And that's okay. That wouldn't be a problem, except the church has always made one claim that has just stuck in the craw of other Christians. The church has always said, the Holy Spirit of God will protect the Catholic Church from teaching error. In faith and morals, God will watch over his church and not allow us to mislead the flock. Can you see what would have happened? The church would have been teaching, life begins at conception, it is perfectly okay to kill that life. What a moral incoherency. I personally believe, and this convinced me once I understood it, the Holy Spirit basically protected his church from doing that. I remember one time saying this in a Protestant Bible study to the ladies in there. I said, uh... You, you think the pill's okay, right? Yeah. It's an abortifacient in some percentage of time, and that evidence is starting to mount. Uh-uh. No, that's not right. There was an OBGYN nurse there. She was sitting in there with her head down like this. She wasn't even looking up. She finally looked up. She said, he's right. Read the package insert. You see what would have happened? Our church would have basically gravely erred on a matter of life and death. She could not have any longer made the claim, the Holy Spirit will protect us. I personally believe that was supernatural because they didn't know and the pressure was enormous to change. The whole world was changing. Those are factors that brought me back to the church. Since I've been back, I've read more and more I'm understanding scripture more and more. I'm understanding history more and more. And I am more and more convinced that our church was the one established by our Lord. That she has been given the fullness of what he wanted to teach. Does that mean that people outside of it are gone to hell? No, the church has never said that. But what it means is, and I tell this to my good Protestant friends. I love Jesus Christ. I go, I don't doubt that you do. I know you do. And given as much as you love him, You'd make a hell of a Catholic. <laughs> My wife was a beautiful woman as a devout evangelical. She is much more holy as a Catholic. She has the means. She has the graces. And furthermore, she has a lot of the truth that she didn't have back when she wasn't in the church. This is not a slam on people not in the church. This is simply saying, if you want everything Jesus taught, this is where you go. There's nothing wrong with that claim. It's either true or it's not. And by the way, if anybody ever asks you why you are Catholic, you answer them one line. Because it's true. There's no other reason to be Catholic. Not because you like the liturgy. Not because they got good rules, you know. I need structure. That's what I need. I need structure. I can't have this loosey-goosey me and Jesus type stuff. No, no, I need some structure obligation. Our parish has a real nice youth group. You know, they're finally coming along with the youth group. I really like that. Well, I was raised Catholic. You know, my family would go bizarro if I ever left the Catholic Church, so it's not worth the hassle. No, Jesus is Jesus here. He's here at the United Methodist. I might as well just keep it here at the Catholic Church. I mean, I just raised Catholic. I might as well just stay that way. Those aren't reasons to be Catholic. The only reason to be Catholic is because it's true. 
If it ain't true, go do what you want. Get out of here. You're wasting your time raising your kids the way they are. It's not true. But if it's true, this is the most important thing in the whole, 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 whole world. Share with you one other thought before I go. It's as though our Lord knew how hard it would be to wrap your head around the Eucharist. The first thousand years of the church, we have no writings whatsoever at all that said this is just a memorial meal. I will tease my Protestant friends. I'd say, so you really have a hard time with this Eucharist thing, huh? Make you a deal. If you go back and in the first 1,000 years of the church, you find a Christian writer who said, the Gospels are to be understood as this is a memorial meal. This is not Jesus Christ. He never meant any such thing. You find one. I might consider converting. If I find 50 that say it's the very body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would you consider converting? Nobody would take that bet. It's not there. I do. The only thing I have is I have this four-part series. Some of you have asked about it. Myself and a priest talked about some of these things on basically what we believe and why. Peter, papacy, the Eucharist, Mary, confession, baptism, Jesus, morality, tradition, scripture, all of that. So I, I do have those if you're all interested. As I said, those would probably be best for those of you who have high school kids and then on up. Um, kind of, it's kind of this sort of approach. It's this logical kind of coherent, why do you think these things sort of approach. Okay, I do have them. Now, on the books, your kids won't be on Springer. On the tapes, I could probably say maybe 30, 60 days off purgatory, maybe something like that right in there. <laughs> of course, since there's no time in eternity, 30, 60 days doesn't mean anything. Who knows? You know, purgatory could be like that. Who knows? <laughs> Let's see if I got any more good jokes. <laughs> Guy dies and goes to heaven. He goes up there, and St. Peter says, well, I got to tell you. I got to tell you, um, we do it a little differently up here than you, than you were told. Um, we, we kind of assess your life and see how good you lived, and then we, we, give you, you know, we give you a place to live on the basis of how you did. Guy says, oh, that, that sounds fair enough, you know. So St. Peter says, let us take a look at your books, and then we'll come up and we'll talk to you. Comes back, says, got your house. Come on. So he takes this guy in a nice middle-class neighborhood, you know, 16, 17, 18, 1,900 square foot home, split level. He says, here's your home. I says, well, that's pretty nice, really. He says, yeah, yeah, there's a couple priests over there. We got a bishop down the street, lives down the street for you there, you know. Protestant pastor, he's just down, just down the alley there. Guy's real happy. Until that night, he looks out his back window, and he sees this monstrous mansion. Dwarfs everything in sight. Huge, probably seven, eight, nine thousand square feet. He calls St. Peter right away quick. He says, uh, who, who lives there? He says, oh, uh, that's uh, Ray Garendi. That's Ray Garendi lives there. He <laughs> says, uh, you know, I, uh, I knew that guy. I mean, I, I, I kind of knew him a little bit. I mean, he was okay, but, uh, I mean, we got bishops here. We got priests. I mean, what is the, what is the gig with, with him living in a house like that? And we're all here. St. Peter says, well, you got to understand something. 
uh, we got a lot of priests here. We got a lot of bishops. Uh, we got a lot of holy mothers. He's the only psychologist we got up here. <laughs> All right, one more, one more. This is my favorite. Just hit me. Just hit me. This guy's standing before St. Peter, and St. Peter says, uh, what's your name? He says, John Miller. He says, what's your birthday? He says, uh, well, I was born in 61. So let me, let me check here. He says, we, we got no record of you. We got no record of you. The guy says, oh, that can't be right. St. Peter says, I don't know what to tell you. Well, can I still get in? St. Peter says, yeah, we got, a, we got an escape clause here. We need to know if you did anything good on earth so we can at least cross-reference it with something else. Can you think of anything? Guy says, uh, yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact. I remember one time I was driving behind this gang, this motorcycle gang. These guys were mean. And they pulled this woman over and they started pounding on her car and yelling at her and screaming at her and that she was scared to death. Well, I couldn't do anything. I, I pulled my pinto over, and I, I got my tire iron out of my car, and I went up to the biggest, meanest, ugliest one, and I smacked him right across the head and knocked him dead down, and I turned around to all of them, and I says, Look, you mess with her, you mess with me. St. Peter said, That's incredible. What an unbelievable act of bravery. We don't even have it on record. I can't understand how we missed this. When did it happen? Guy says, oh, about a minute ago. (laughs) The girls are going, oh, that's stupid. The guys are like, yeah. Thank you all so much. been listening to St. Joseph Radio Presents from the Rome of the West, St. Louis, Missouri. If you would like to join us in our evangelization efforts, you can order a copy of today's broadcast or any of our past programs by visiting us on our website, stjosephradio.net. That's S-A-I-N-T, josephradio.net. Or call us, 636-447-6000. It's all at your fingertips to help us evangelize the world, bringing the good news of Christ to everyone one you meet and change one soul at a time. Thank you for your prayers and support. Until next time, may God bless you and your family. This has been a presentation of St. Joseph Radio Presents.